I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, in June of 1979, Pope John Paul II returned to his homeland of Poland. This week marks the 40th anniversary. Perhaps at no other time in the 20th century has one man so influenced the nation. His visit ignited the solidarity movement in Poland that led to the liberation of millions. His nine-day pilgrimage would change the world. His close relationship and shared mission with President Ronald Reagan would lead to the, one of the most extraordinary moments of the 20th century. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
Pope John Paul II had a remarkable life. He was born in 1920, and so there was a sudden burst after World War I. Poland once again is reestablished, it exists once again as a nation, and that's the world into which Karl Joseph Wojtyla is born. He's born in the Polish town of Wadowice, and he is the youngest of three children, born to Karl Wojtyla and to Emilia Kaczorowska. His mother died when he was nine. His father raised him. He was very, very close to his father. And his father cared deeply about him and thought that Karol Wojtyla had a great future, had a potential to be somebody. And so in 1938, at the age of 18, his father takes him. They leave Wadowice, and they move to Krakow. And that's where Karol Wojtyla goes, enrolling at the Agalonian University, which is a great and very old historic center of education in Poland. In 1939, there's a Nazi-Soviet pact. The Soviets get uh, the eastern part of Poland, the Nazis get the western part of Poland, and the Nazi German occupation forces close the university. Butiwa himself actually ends up going out and working in, in a quarry. He's hurt at one point. He's doing physical labor. I think it's part of why, unlike a lot of popes, he had a real sense for everyday working people. He was from them. He had worked with them. He lived with them. He had a real instinct for reaching out and communicating with people who had earned their living through manual labor. He also, in that period of his life, joined a theater group, which was illegal. The Nazis were trying to destroy Polish culture, and so there was a death penalty if they could prove that you belong to this particular theater group that was dedicated to Polish plays and Polish culture and literature. But he did that anyway. It's the first really good example of a principle that's at the heart of who he was. He was so devoutly Catholic. He believed in God so much that I don't know that he was ever courageous. I think rather he never felt fear. And he often said that. He said, have no fear. He didn't say have courage. And the reason he said have no fear is that he figured, look, the worst that will happen is I'll die and I'll be with God. So you're threatening to put me with God. I wouldn't mind being with God. And as a result, he's a remarkably calm and a remarkably brave human being. First under the Nazis, he ends up going to seminary, which was illegal. He is hidden while he's in seminary because if the Nazis find him in the seminary, they're going to kill him. And then he comes out of the seminary. The country is liberated. And here's his great opportunity to live in freedom, except the people doing the liberation are the Soviets, who are not only establishing a totalitarian state, but they're also anti-Catholic and anti-Christian. And so all of his formative years after he's 18 years of age are spent under either a Nazi tyranny or a Soviet tyranny. Now, in that period, he learns a very calm and a very deep belief this is a man who believes deeply in prayer. He believes deeply in salvation. He loves people. He's an intellectual. He writes a great deal. And very calmly is prepared to stand up to the Soviets. And I think there he's imbued in part by a sense of fatalism. His father had died of a heart attack in 1941. And as uh, the Pope said uh, some 40 years later, at, at quote, to 20 I had already lost all the people I loved. Now think about that for a minute. He's lost his mother. He's lost his father. He's in a position of living with 
Nazi occupiers, then Soviet occupiers, and so he has to find strength inside himself. He calmly and steadily grows. He grows intellectually. He grows as a leader. As a bishop, he takes on the uh, Polish communist government and uh, has a long struggle over establishing a new church. They don't want any new churches, and he just methodically leads the people of the community in rebuilding it. They tear it down. He rebuilds it. Finally, they give up and say, okay, you get, go ahead and have the church. And then, of course, dedicating that church becomes an enormous victory over the communist state. He is seen more and more by people in Rome as a great talent. He comes down, plays a substantial role in Vatican II, which is a multi-year intellectual effort. And that's part of where I think he suddenly stands out in a way people might not have suspected. John Paul II, while he's physically charismatic and physically an athlete, he's a great intellectual. He writes brilliantly. He argues brilliantly. He steadily emerges. And when the Pope dies, they have an election. And he comes in a distant second, but still it's a little shocking to everybody. Here's this guy from Krakow. I mean, we had not had a non-Italian pope in 400 years. And uh, he comes in second. And then 31 days later, Pope John Paul dies. And they have a second conclave. And he emerges as the natural leader. He becomes pope. Now you had a Polish Catholic leader, and that was beginning to change everything. The Russians instantly understand they have a problem. And now let's listen to the actual coverage of the announcement of John Paul II's election. Coming out into the balcony now, led by the cross, Cardinal Felici, who will announce to us about 22 minutes after we first saw the white smoke who the new pope will be. And he looks down, smiling onto an enormous sea of faces here, well in excess of 150,000 people. He will be handed the book and speak to the assembled crowd. Annuncio Bobis Gaudium Magnum. I bring you tidings of great joy, I believe, Father O'Keefe, is what he's saying. Exactly, yes. Abemus Papam. Eminentissimum ac reverendissimum dominum, dominum carolum, sancte romane ecclesiae, cardinalem boitiva. non-Italian Pope in 455 years. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, John O'Sullivan, author of The President, The Pope, and The Prime Minister, Three Who Changed the World. You played a real role in fighting communism in Central Europe. Can you just take a minute or two and talk about yourself? As a journalist living and working mainly in London and in England and, and America later, until uh, 89. I, uh, I was very, always very strongly anti-communist, always very strongly sympathetic to the attempts of the people in Eastern Europe to break free. I got to know circles of, of anti-communist emigres, 
people would send me new people who'd just arrived back from there. And as a result of that, I was probably be- much better informed about what was going on and about the currents of opinion that were fermenting under the surface of the of communist rule in those countries. So that when a Polish pope was chosen and when later on we saw the, the eruptions of the Velvet Revolutions and so on, I was surprised, of course, and we all thought that Soviet Union looked kind of implacable and might not might be there all our lives. But at the same time, I wasn't totally surprised because I knew the feelings, the passions, and the sentiments that were bubbling away among the ordinary people and among brave and political dissidents under the rule of the communists. And it was very remarkably encouraging. I'll tell you one interesting thing, Newt, which I really learned about only recently, but in the year before John Paul II went to Poland, Billy Graham went to Budapest, and he gave a sermon outside the city in a big park. And, of course, there was no mention of this in the newspapers or the mass media. But, you know, a huge audience gathered to hear him. And they sort of made their way through this sort of forest to where he was going to be speaking, past other people who were just enjoying a Sunday afternoon out. And he got a huge audience. Now, there was this untapped desire for God and religion, as well as for liberty and political independence in in Eastern Europe, in all of the countries. It was greater in some and lesser in others, but it was there everywhere. And one of the reasons I wanted you to help us better understand this context is you end up writing a book which weaves all three of them together. You weave Reagan and Thatcher and the Pope. And in a sense, I think, we would still have a Soviet Union without those three. I mean, would you agree with that sentiment? I would, and so I think would quite a lot of people who were themselves surprised by the speed with which the arrival of the Pope and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher dissolved the empire. It took 10 years. The speed was surprising, but a lot of people, including in a conversation I had with Henry Kissinger, he said he could see the end of the of the Soviet empire, but he was thinking in terms of decades. Uh, he wasn't thinking in terms of one decade or less than one decade. So people were already moving towards feeling free. And uh, if you talk to people who lived through that time at the sharp end of things, like, for example, Richard Legutko, the Polish philosopher and politician, who's now a member of the European Parliament, he says that he really never felt quite so free as he did in the last three or four years of communism. They no longer had the confidence to enforce their rules. And solidarity and the Pope between them had given people courage to say and write and argue what they thought. That's why, in fact, the end of communism turned out not to be an explosive end with bodies in the streets and people storming barricades. It was a a, a gradual, quiet surrender by communists. They just essentially gave up and let other people take over. And then when they saw that the game was hopeless, the communists essentially sat down and negotiated their way out of power. When we come back, as the Solidarity Movement takes hold, the Polish communist regime begins to crumble.
when the Pope arrives 40 years ago and is standing there in what was then called Victory Square, there are like three million people who come to this mass. And here they are, they're seeing a Polish Pope. So they have nationalism, they have personal pride, they have Catholicism, which has always been one of the binding elements of Polish society, despite all the various pain they've been through. The Pope has a joint press appearance with the head of the dictatorship, Jaruzelski. And you can see Jaruzelski's leg is shaking. He is so frightened and so uncertain what to do with the Pope that he's just totally rattled. Yes, I think that's true. And I think that it's estimated that approximately a third of the Polish population attended masses um, at which the Pope spoke in that nine days in Poland, a third. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you go to that rally, if you go to a mass, um, if you listen to that sermon, that you are declaring yourself a dissident for God, maybe, a dissident for freedom, a dissident for Poland, but still a dissident. Now, you turn to your right, the person on your right, you know that they're doing the same thing. They're experiencing the same emotions, the same sense of uh, liberation. And the person that's true for the person on your left as well. So everybody knows that that crowd, all of them, are doing things which are, in principle, according to the communists, hostile to that regime. And that gives them that, that moment then, and obviously from that point on, a sense that, no, they don't have to follow those fellows' rules. They don't have to obey. They don't have to be frightened. And they don't have to accept that some political party is going to lay down what their future is going to be. They can make their own future in conjunction with their friends and family. That is the liberation sense that the Pope's visit gave. Simply by going to that mass, you liberated yourself. And at one point we're with Vaclav Havel, who is not a Catholic, and he's not particularly religious. He's a very, very famous uh, writer and poet, playwright, and he had been in exile and, and had only become head of the Czech Republic. And so I said to him, what was the decisive moment where things began to change? And he said, oh, there's no question. He said it was when the Pope came to Poland. He said, that sent shockwaves through every single country in Eastern Europe, we were all used to quietly talking to each other. We'd all go up into the mountains along the border between the two countries, and we'd all have cabins on our side of the border, and then we'd walk it, we'd go across and see each other because there wasn't a difficult border inside the Iron Curtain. The big border was between the Iron Curtain and the rest of the world. And he said, you know, for me, that, that was the decisive moment. In many ways, the Pope makes solidarity real. While Reagan and Thatcher and the Pope really mattered, how seminal do you think the, that trip was in setting the stage that people began to realize that there was a potentially huge vulnerability uh, in the uh, Soviet Empire? I think it's different in every country because there were different degrees of repression. To a considerable degree, the church protected Poles, um, including Poles who were not Catholic, from the communist repression. The communists were frightened of the church. They wanted to subvert it. 
um, they wanted to, they they were prepared to antagonize it, but they didn't want a constant open conflict. They could never predict the outcome. The Czechs were the worst, were the most repressed. They were repressed because of '68, and the regime that came in then and imposed what they called normalization was determined to, in a sense, restore a sense that communist life was a, a reasonable, normal kind of life, and they banished people who rebelled, who dissented in the smallest ways, to humiliating jobs. The Hungarian government, after a period of a tremendously tough crackdown, with people were executed and sent off to labor camps in 56, about some 10 or 12 years later, they started to liberalize, and they had set out to corrupt the Hungarian people, to give them a little freedom here and there, and gradually increasing doses. Yes, you can send your kids to university, you can travel abroad for a limited period, maybe you can have a small dash in the country, these kind of things. But the, the price of that is, we want you just to keep out of politics or support the government, one or the other. And of course, Kadar, the very clever, true leader of the communists, uh, he described his regime's viewers as, he who is not against us is with us. And so all of these countries were different. They all had the, the governments were abusing them, but abusing them in quite different ways. And the, gradually, in all three cases, opposition grew. But it grew most, I think, most obviously in Poland, because the church itself, on the one hand, and the great personal achievement of Lech Wałęsa and the Solidarity Movement on the other, meant that they were prepared to step out, to say things loudly, what other people said quietly, and to transform a situation in which the people, in a sense, lived alongside communism and tried to get by to one in which they defied it. The end of communism comes in stages. They were preparing themselves for the moment when a greater freedom would arise, and it began to arise with solidarity and the Pope in Poland, and it gradually spread to the rest of the Eastern Bloc until, in the end, the communist government cuts a deal with the Austrians. They literally they have a picnic on the border with Austria. They cut the barrier, the steel barrier, and then the next thing that happens is people from East Germany who are vacationing flee through it, and all of a sudden the events begin that lead later that year to the Berlin Wall collapsing. It's an extraordinary story. It's the end of a brutal revolutionary regime. People grab freedom first by degrees and then much more massively. Part of what was happening, I think, was that you had people who understood how to be very dramatic. Thatcher was in some ways a natural teacher. Reagan had been an actor, and, and in their first meeting between Reagan and the Pope, they compare notes on the two big parallels. The Pope had wanted to be an actor early in his life before he went into the seminary and had actually been part of a group that met regularly in Krakow, even when it was a death penalty to belong to that group and the Nazis were trying to stamp out Polish national identity. And, of course, Reagan had been a professional actor. So they actually are comparing notes on their jobs and what are the tools that that brings to you and you can see this, I think, the Pope, not just in Poland, but around the world, that he's playing the role of being a great crusader. He looks the part. He acts the part. We tend to remember him now as a very old man who 
was suffering from significant illness. But when he was younger, he was an astonishingly vigorous person, just as Reagan and Thatcher were both vigorous. And there was some weird contrast between the Soviet leaders who, as Reagan once said, they could never arrange a summit because they kept dying faster than they could organize the summit. And I think you have some of that kind of experience underway dealing with these guys. And and so you do have this sense of mutual vigor in the West and an atrophying system in the East. And I think that that was part of the symbolism that really made a big difference. No, I agree with that. That first struck me, actually, in 1979, just after Mrs. Thatcher had been elected. She had boundless energy. And this is part of what the Pope is playing off of on his trip. He is representing vitality. He's also representing salvation. So in a sense, you have this failing regime that can't meet any of its goals, can't give people a decent living, can't give them hope for a decent future. And you have a Pope who's basically, in a very charismatic and powerful way, offering you salvation. That's true. By the mid-'80s, they were preparing their departure. Certainly, I remember meeting a, a communist, leading communist apparatchik in London when he was on a visit from Hungary. And he was very candid in how he described to me the way in which he thought the politics in Hungary was going to go. And he said, well, the hardliners at the moment have still got enough power to stop us moving towards multi-party elections. But that's going to break down, and I would guess we'll have multi-party elections in 88 or 89. And I remember saying, well, aren't you going to lose them? He said, oh, yes, we'll lose them. The communists will split in two. There'll be a hardline faction remaining communists, and others will become social democrats, a new party, something like that. And we will lose the first election. That's inevitable. The situation in Hungary is, for any government is extremely tough. We've got lots of debts. Things aren't working out that well. So we'll probably win the election after that. And the fact is, that is exactly what happened. And they were losing power, but they still had a lot of craft and shrewdness and cunning. And that's why for the first 10 or 15 years after 1989, we had freedom, but the the communists were still running quite a lot of things. It took a long time before people, in a sense, adapted to freedom. They had adapted out of communism in 89, but they had not, in a sense, adapted for freedom. And it it, it took some time before they succeeded in doing so. It was a that was a hard decade for the people of, of Eastern Europe after 89. Yeah, and I think you could see that, for example, with East Germany, which when it collapsed and they merged with West Germany, the cultural differences between being in an entrepreneurial, free enterprise society where you're expected to work every day and you're expected to be productive and having come out of a communist bureaucracy, whereas the, the famous saying was that the the Soviets pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. And that system simply wouldn't function in the setting that was evolving. As you look at that period, you see movement and you, you realize how big the rallies are for the Pope. The passion that people brought to these meetings, when the Pope would ride into town in an open-air vehicle, the crowds lining the streets and the excitement was... And for nine days... That's what he's doing. And so the whole country, as you said, a third of the people physically saw him. Everybody saw him on television, despite the efforts to sort of censor it and minimize it. And 
you could sort of see, uh, one of my favorite scenes is there's an all-night youth movement, and the Pope goes and, and sits with them, thousands and thousands of young people. He sits with them for, oh, three or four hours, and he, he sort of has his hand on his chin, just watching them and thinking about them. And this whole sense of watching a new generation rally to freedom and rally to the church. And you could feel his sense of satisfaction at that point. Yes, that is absolutely true. On the other hand, we have to remember that all of the other events that are occurring about this time, which make the progress of mankind, so to speak, towards greater freedom and liberty in Europe and elsewhere, more complicated than it now seems to us. Remember, there were huge rallies in Western Europe at that time against the installation of the cruise and Pershing missiles by the United States in Western Europe. Those missiles were there, in a sense, to be a counter to the missiles that had been placed in Eastern Europe by the Soviets and which directly threatened accurately Western cities. Now, they attracted millions of people too, and they frightened governments. They were always hoping to get the hope of the Catholic Church. They did get the help of some bishops, just as uh, Catholic bishops in the United States were very critical of Reagan's arms build-up. But they never got the support of the Pope. And they got the strong opposition, not only of Reagan, but also of Mrs. Thatcher and other Western European leaders whom she went around and was trying to stiffen their resolve. But until the missiles were planted there, that was a major moment because it was the end of any hope of the Soviets winning the Cold War on their part. They knew it was over. And it's as a result of that that Gorbachev subsequently goes to Geneva and Reykjavik and Washington. And, of course, there were demonstrations against Reagan whenever he came. Of course, he was the, the best possible representative of the United States when it came to winning around opinion to the policy that is both the extended hand of peace, but at the same time, the willingness to defend oneself. This combination and the actor's skill he brought to this was, I think, very important. The European view of Reagan in 1988 is light years away from the European view of Reagan in 1980. They're two different worlds. They regard him in a completely different way, not any longer as a trigger-happy cowboy, but as a shrewd, successful, fundamentally generous-minded American statesman. And that's a big deal, that change. The Pope's impact was powerful everywhere. It was powerful in Eastern Europe, it was powerful in Western Europe, and it was powerful in Latin America. Next, President Reagan employs U.S. covert operations to keep the Pope informed about Soviet plans. President Reagan kept sending a special envoys with our satellite photography to brief the Pope on exactly what the Soviets are doing. And the Pope stood solidly with President Reagan, as did Thatcher, against the effort to pressure us into unilaterally disarming. And I think that was one of the things that began to close the door 
that they couldn't find a way to get around us, that the alliance as a whole was so big, and particularly in some of its non-military aspects, for example, with the church, it really made a huge difference in the East, and we cooperated with the church, for example, in getting printing presses to solidarity. So suddenly, you have all sorts of publications showing up, you have all sorts of capabilities coming, and it was really a remarkably effective campaign to reassert freedom and to defy the what had seemed 20 years earlier the imposingly powerful and almost inevitable Soviet empire, which looked weaker and weaker every single year of the 1980s. Well, that's true. There's no doubt that Vatican diplomacy until John Paul II was essentially, it had its own ospolity. It was essentially based on a belief that the Soviet control of Eastern Europe, that the communist power there was irremovable. It would be there indefinitely. And we had to find a way of persuading the communists to live with us and live with the church and treat the church decently. That, of course, turns out to have been a radical misjudgment. But it was the misjudgment which held most of the Vatican diplomatic bureaucracy in its grip, and they were very nervous of John Paul II. On the visit in 1979, there was nervousness on the part of some of the Vatican people with him about the fact that he's getting these huge crowds, particularly crowds of young people, and they're saying, what's going to happen here? There's going to be some kind of terrible disturbance. They're very worried about that. The church in Poland, brave though it was, was always somewhat after John Paul the left. I mean, he had to sort of buttress its, its willingness to support the solidarity. They were nervous of solidarity, not, not in any hostile way, but they just thought, who knows where this is going to lead? I mean, they didn't think it would lead to the end of communism peacefully. So the Pope was extremely important because he realized that Reagan was a genuine reformer and a genuine lover of peace. This was a man who thought it would be morally wrong to respond to a Soviet attack by killing millions of Russians in return. What he wanted to do was not to avenge American deaths, but to prevent American deaths with a missile defense system. That's a very big moral point in Reagan's favor with the Pope, it seems to me. I think also that they were deeply impacted in that first visit by the fact that both of them had been shot and had recovered. Both of them had a very religious view of God having spared them to do something, so that there was a common bond of experience. All three of them, Thatcher, Reagan, and the Pope, all were intuitively part of a team, and they were intuitively committed to a general vision of the future, and they didn't necessarily have detailed plans, but they had a general direction and they sort of moved down the field together, each helping reinforce the other in a way that I think was totally unpredictable four or five years earlier. You couldn't have imagined that the Soviet Empire was that vulnerable. You couldn't have imagined getting a pope who was that aggressive and who, by being Polish, was right at the heart of the Eastern Bloc. And you couldn't quite imagine, prior to her winning, having a British prime minister as tough and as intellectual as Thatcher. And you couldn't imagine this movie star who turned out just to know a great deal about how the world works and how to get things done. So it's it's one of the more remarkable trios. Yes, it is. One can't help feeling of the kind of chill on the spine that 
these three people come to power in their respective way, in, in their respective institutions, at times of great crisis for those institutions. Against all the odds, they begin to turn the crisis to good effect and to solve it. And then just as they're beginning to do so, each of them is struck down. In the case of Mrs. Thatcher, she was not herself wounded. Had she been in that, and she was in a suite, had she been in the bathroom where she had gone after a, a speech writing session, a moment longer, I think she was out about two minutes, when the bomb went off, that whole section of the hotel collapsed, she would have been killed, as five other people were. In each case, they are attacked by the forces of evil. In each case, they have a narrow escape, physically narrow in the case of the Pope and Reagan, because the bullet just misses their most vital organs, in her case, an escape because she wasn't in the vulnerable spot when the bomb went off. They have escaped this. And there's no doubt that Reagan and the Pope, as you said, had a, a, took the view that God had spurred them. God had spurred them for some purpose, some great cause. And they did have that to share with each other. The pivotal figure here is Reagan. It's he who has a really strong relationship with the Pope and he who has a really strong relationship with Mrs. Thatcher. He's the man who links both of them in all sorts of ways. But the Pope and Mrs. Thatcher did meet. I know from conversations that he admired her, but he didn't have, in a sense, the same close contact or understanding. They came from somewhat different mental worlds as well as uh, physical worlds, and he was never, in that sense, as close to her as both men were to each other. I think it's really important to remember that in Poland and Eastern Europe in general, they had suffered starting in 1939 under the Nazis. And the Nazis were extraordinarily ruthless and very willing to kill people. And then they get sort of liberated, but they're liberated by the Soviets. And the Soviets are anti-religious and anti-Christian. And so if you're somebody like John Paul II, You've literally spent your entire adult life in the shadow of two consecutive totalitarian dictatorships, both of which were willing to use force, both of which were willing to use torture. And I think that's part of why you have this, this almost numb sense of the limitations of what they can get away with, and where John Paul II begins to make a real difference, even back when he's a bishop and then ultimately cardinal, in that he is willing to calmly stand up to the government, but in very careful ways. I mean, he's very aware that if he pushes them too far, that they do have the sheer power just to kill him. And at one point, they do kill a reforming priest whose body uh, shows up having been beaten to death. There's a real balance of courage and at the same time, realistic appreciation that uh, they will kill you if you go too far at any one time. And I think when he was arranging to go back, which is really quite funny, he wanted to go back for the feast of St. Stanislav, who's the patron saint of Poland. And he'd ask, I think, to go back for three or four days. And they were desperate to not have him there because they thought it was such a national symbol that they said, I'll tell you what, why don't we give you nine days in June instead of three or four days in May? And I think John Paul, being relatively smart, looked at that and said, let me get this straight. <laughs> You're afraid of my impact on the country, so you're doubling the number of days I'm going to come? Sure, I'll do it. Deal. 
And so he shows up, and it just turns out they had been warned by, by Brezhnev not to do this. And Brezhnev said, you're playing with fire. This guy could ignite the popular will of the whole country. And I wouldn't do it. And Yaruzelski, who was the Polish leader at that point, said to him, I can't turn down a Polish pope. The country would explode. He said, I have to invite him. But the pope played it perfectly, got a lot more time than anybody thought he would. Reagan was still doing his radio show, and Reagan wrote several times about the impact of this new pope and how important he thought the new pope was. And all of the Reagan radio shows about John Paul II are very flattering and very positive. And I suspect that the Pope was well aware that Reagan personally had, in a sense, embraced his papacy and had embraced his trip to Poland in a way that was really quite powerful. Reagan makes his famous Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech in Berlin. And on the very same day in Poland, the Pope is talking about tearing down the wall. And so there were sort of echo chambers back and forth between the two of them. Part of that came about because President Reagan, for the first time, recognized officially the Vatican and his uh, very close personal friend, Bill Wilson, from Southern California, became the first ambassador. This is actually the 35th anniversary of establishing formal relations. And my wife, as the ambassador right now, is uh, spending most of the year celebrating it in a variety of ways because it was an important moment. Up until then, we had never had uh, a full-time embassy or official formal diplomatic uh, recognition. And Reagan and the Pope thought that it was essential that they create a positive, ongoing relationship. So there's a papal nuncio in Washington, and we have an ambassador in uh, the Vatican, and that is a direct result of the partnership between Reagan and John Paul II. The 40th anniversary is a good time to look back and realize that people can change history. People can make an enormous difference. That moral courage matters. That a willingness to stand up for what you believe can be the fulcrum on which the entire world changes. And that there was a magic time when it looked like the Soviet Union was gigantic, would never change, that the tyranny would remain for millions. And in that magic time, a few people, Pope John Paul II, President Ronald Reagan, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, found a way to work together despite everything. And in that process, created a movement and excitement and enthusiasm. And within a decade, the Soviet empire had collapsed. It was a remarkable moment. And I think one of the key starting points was the nine days that John Paul II went back to Poland, the nine days that changed the world. And I think that it's well worth looking at and recognizing what he was saying, the moral courage with which he said it, and the summation of a lifetime which had been led under Nazi tyranny, Soviet tyranny, and in the end grew to love God despite all that, and then grew to lead the entire human race to a better future. Thank you to my guest, John O'Sullivan. 
You can read an excerpt from his book, The President, the Pope, and the Prime Minister, Three Who Changed the World, and hear more about John Paul II's visit to Poland on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock, Tim Sabian, and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, I am joined by one of the nation's leading scholars of American history and winner of the Pulitzer Prize, author Joseph J. Ellis. For Father's Day, we're celebrating with a discussion about our nation's founding fathers. What distinguishes him is he makes up his mind early on and never turns back. He's coexisting in a world that until the summer of 76 is fundamentally undecided. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finish. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.